Storymakers. I'm Angie Powers. I'm Elizabeth Stark. And And this this is Storymakers Show. And let's check in about what we're working on. Great. What are you working on? Well, I am in I'm in waiting mode, which we know is actually super challenging for me. <laughs> um, although I heard, you know, rumors of goodness, so that helped a lot. Uh, so I think I'm working on becoming a more balanced individual where I can just be like, yeah, I creative work right now. Yeah, I'm, yes. I'm on. My creative work's on hold, and I'm cleaning the house, and that's all fine and fun. And I feel good about instead me. of like I'm completely exhausted and whatever. So yeah, so that's you know those cycles. Um, I also I I did a step list, which you know is one of your book and ear tools, um, story development tools, and I've done them before. You know, I, I but anyway, so I just. I didn't, I'm doing it again, and I did about two-thirds, so I'm going to finish the step list and start looking at some of the order that these scenes could go in that I've deepened. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of my part, and wait for my notes next week on this round. Excellent. And I will say, I am learning so, so, so much, and a book that, you know, felt really strong and got a lot of excitement. Positive feedback, Positive yeah. feedback is, seems to me like maybe ten times better which is amazing, right? Like mm-hmm. just the, you know. It's the, hard to imagine. You see it and you feel good, you know, where it yeah. is. And then someone's like, you know what? It's like having a coach, right? right? And you're like, no, I am running a, like a four minute and, you know, eight second mile. And your coach is like, I think you can get sub four. And you're like, really? <laughs> I was really happy with my four minutes, eight seconds, right? Right. Just getting, just pushing to that mm-hmm. next level. And it's very exciting. Yay. It, when it's not exhausting and depleting. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I did sort of want to say to our listeners and my students that, you know, I think sometimes people are like, especially when our kids were littler and it was like, how can you write and have little kids and all that? And it's like, you just have no idea what I'm not doing. Like, like I go to my, I mean, you know, we're sort of in the suburbs, but I go to my Pilates bar class and it's like, they all have pedicures. And it's like, I cannot, literally cannot remember the last time I had any, like a manicure or a pedicure. And you know, my house is either. a mess. Actually, I know exactly when I had that. <laughs> For your sister's wedding. Exactly. <laughs> She's about to have her 20th anniversary, I think. Yeah. But you also have no interest in them. And I actually, in another life, wouldn't mind having a manicure or pedicure. I wouldn't mind cleaning my house more. I wouldn't, you know, like, I wouldn't mind not just doing the laundry, but actually then folding it. Like, I do laundry, but, you know, so it's like, how do I have time? There are real sacrifices to having all the things I do and teaching and family and writing. It's like, yeah, something gives. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. So I just wanted to say that in case, you know, sometimes from the outside, it looks looks like, look at you getting up and writing and da-da-da. And it's like, yeah. But, you know, I'm cranky and I, my house is dirty and I don't have a pedicure. What a price to pay. <laughs> <laughs> so what are you working on? I am right now working on basically getting, still working on all the marketing materials for the film. So as we get ready for the film festivals, you know, putting together all of these things that I, it's, it's a, again, wonderful education being in a situation where you're sort of forced to do it. And um, 
it's a little like, oh, like if I if I had known this is what was happening in this, like I knew you had to have an electronic press kit. But if I had any idea what was in a press kit, I might have done like a couple of different things. And luckily we had some behind the scenes camera stuff and different things happening. And I think I could have made it during production, right. just, you know, right. with a simple enough I mean, honestly, a PA could have done it during production, right. just going around, collecting information, getting photos, and then helping me, like, organize them into a, an accessible thing. So Next time. Next time. So that's very exciting. And, um, you know, right now, that's kind of the big thing. I'm also experimenting. You know, we did the short film that we did our little experiment. So... When I have time, I'm going back to that and, and trying to get it into some semblance of order and working on pixelating a dance belt. So that takes longer than you think. Um, <laughs> so that's what I'm working on. That is fantastic. Very exciting. So we have a listener question that came in. Hello, listener. Um, and um, I have a sort of a long version that I'm going to actually summarize, which is sort of funny because... The question is about summary versus scene. So um, she talks about feeling confused about when it's okay to compress time through summary in a novel and admitting, you know, partly she's rushing in this early draft, rushing through a lot of material to get to the end of the certain section by the end of the summer. And, um, and then, you know, she says, I thought that after I get through this part and in future revisions, I'd be able to see better what needs expanding or cutting or uh, summarizing. So when is it okay to compress time through summary and telling? And how do you know when you're in the first draft? A lot of this, I mean, came out of, of a back and forth around, you know, bringing out those, those small moments that make something significant so that even if something's very dramatic you know sort of catapulting through large events in summary isn't actually meaningful to the reader the way well I'm going to actually flip it around and instead of thinking about when you wouldn't use them thinking about right or when you wouldn't use scene or when you wouldn't use summary Mm -hmm. right so um or when you would use them I'm sorry so what are the things like if you if you don't think of these as no-no's (laughs) <laughs> things you shouldn't do is like summarize or tell or whatever. They're in fact tools. Yeah, absolutely. So understanding the time and place for a particular tool is really what you want to start thinking about. And so if you're in your first draft and what you're trying to do is get ahead by knowing things you can't possibly know until you finish the first draft while you're writing your first draft, it may not be a successful approach. What well, might not be? Trying to assess what you need. So you're saying there may be just, you may need to just write it out? To- well, in your first draft. And I think that's the key. Like if, I, if, if you are in your first draft, I, I always am sort of loath to say to someone in their first draft, you know, there is a right or a wrong way to get the material down. Mm-hmm. Because the material is what you need to work from. And so... I like to do, like, if I were to think of my first draft, I would, you know, I almost think of an outline as my first draft, right? Right. And so then I go from from that point forward. So you're all, it's an iterative process. If you're someone who's, like, drafting, so if I've, let's say, I've made my outline and now I'm drafting and I've come to an outline point that is vague. And so 
one, maybe didn't do a good job on my outline. Mm-hmm. Or not didn't do a good job, but have an opportunity to cycle right. back in and clarify the outline. Because there are absolutely times when you want to summarize, right? You, we, when we look at editing, we, we don't say, really, I wish I had known more about how this person got across the room. Like, rarely is that a question. Okay, but there's a difference between summarizing and simply cutting, right? Like Right, but summarizing is what is something that is a repetitive action that fundamentally doesn't change over time? That's when you would summarize. So if you have every day... Or cut. Or cut, but you may be needing to communicate that every day um, someone does something, right? So... We don't need to see someone spending years and years in, you know, drawing a circle over and over. That's like when, you know, that's when you would want to go ahead and say, like, and every day for the next 10 years, this person drew a circle. We don't need to know how each circle went. It's a repetitive action. And that's a great use of summary. Your you know, reader is so glad <laughs> you did that. It's interesting because I'm reading uh, Michelle Obama's memoir, Becoming... Michelle Obama. And um, it's, you know, and it's, I don't know. I mean, of course, she's, you know, you're sort of fascinated by who she is and all of that. Um, But she does such a beautiful job of giving us sort of her life. And so there is a certain amount of summary, but it feels as if you're sort of hovering over the apartment, kind Mm -hmm. of watching the characters move along. You know, it almost, the summary almost functions as kind of a voiceover that has enough enough specificity in the prose that you're you're simultaneously creating really concrete images mm-hmm. as you're understanding that you're moving through time more quickly than a scene would. Right. Right? So you're getting a feel for the whole. And because it's a memoir, um, you know, there are a few specific scenes, but there's a lot of, like, I did this kind of thing, mm-hmm. right? And she does just a beautiful job of moving into the specificity of a moment or the details of a time right. so that it, you're, it feels experiential and vivid. Mm-hmm. So, but the question wasn't mm-hmm. how to do good, great summary. But, right. Although part of the answer might be do great summary when you do, when you do it. Well, yes. But again, we're talking about early draft work. So I, right. again, trying to move away from the judgment language. Right. Well, part of it is, you know, if I'm reading a draft and I'm trying to say, okay, here's the next draft. And, and we're getting a lot of summary, then I'm going to say, if this moment's important, I'd like to see it in scene. If this moment isn't important, I'd like it to be cut. Right. So what, what we're saying, though, is like, um, if it's something that can be cut, probably should be cut, right? Uh, summary can't be cut if you need to understand those repetitive actions. All right. So, let, so this that's a great first principle. So the first principle is kind of anything that can be cut. And this is this is not first draft, though, right? So, mm-hmm. so, okay, so the very first principle is just write. Just keep writing. Like, don't worry if it's summary. Don't worry if it's seen. Just get it out however it's coming out. I mean, I think it can be helpful. That's what I love about early, you know, dream time writing, right, is, is that you're more inclined to create scene. It feels less scary. Your, your kind of brain that wants to control everything is, is more asleep, and your storyteller dreamer is more awake, and so you're more willing to create specificity mm-hmm. and all of that. Okay, so the first thing is, though, when you're writing your first draft, like, there is no should, right? Exactly. Okay, the second is when you go back to your draft or when you think, okay, what am I writing tomorrow or whatever, you can, you can and do want to be thinking, 
you know, is this necessary? But again, on the early draft, if you're if you're kind of feeling the urge toward it, you may discover how it's necessary. Mm-hmm. But in your revision, you are definitely looking for, could I cut this? And if I can cut it, then it's, I don't need it. Right. Right? Mm-hmm. So if I can cut it, I don't need it. Or I need to figure out how to make it indispensable. Mm-hmm. Right? If for some reason it feels like, it feels important, but I know I can cut it. Well, maybe there's something else that's going to be discovered that will situated as indispensable right so yes. it's so okay then once it's if you can cut it cut it now we're looking at summary versus scene and maybe you've got this hodgepodge because it's your first draft how are you deciding this part could be expanded developed zoomed in on made into a scene and this part can be fast forwarded through in summary i well for myself, I think one of the things I really track is my own boredom. Because, you know, if you're in a scene that should be summary, like, you can feel it. Right. And if you're, or if you're in a series of scenes that should be just summarized, you can feel it. So so kind of if you're like, you know, this can't be cut because they need to know that they spent three months digging ditches. Right, but then, I oh, don't need to say, know what each right. unique day but, I mean, looked like. Well, there's a thing, right? So it's like if, if, you're, if your reasoning is, I can't cut this because they need to know they spent three months digging ditches, you might just need the sentence, they spent three months digging ditches. If you're like, this part can't be cut because while they spent three months digging ditches, they fell in love, they realized what ditch digging really meant, and they, you know, whatever, then those might, then you have a sequence of those scenes. Those would be individual scenes, yeah. Yeah. But at the same time, I just want to say that, again, you're looking at that arc, So if there's not a fundamental change, summary is fantastic because it gets us through. If if you're writing a situation where really it's just event after event after event, but there's no real, even if there's discrete events, but there's no real arc. Yeah, no change, no build. Right. So it's like, here's how terrible things happened on Monday. And this was a different set of terrible things that were unrelated, except to say that they went to the same school and this school was a terrible place. And then on Wednesday, this terrible thing happened. And then on Thursday and then on Friday. And it doesn't feel like it actually moves you. So if you're able then to sort of identify the shock at learning how terrible this environment is, it's like, that's a scene. That's like an opening, an initial earlier on scene. Right. And then discovering that the reason this is happening is because the principal is, you know, harvesting organs from the varsity sports teams. <laughs> like, that's like what happens on Wednesday. Discovery. Right. And then, so that's a scene. And then on Friday, it's when during the big assembly for Spirit Week, they all decide to finally stand up or something. Mm-hmm. So it's it's not, you don't need... It's a terrible place and time, so we're going to do this over and over. You don't even need it's going to. It's a wonderful place and time, and that one we see much more easily. I think, like mm-hmm. when we're like things are good, we get bored of good so fast, right? And we're so clear, like oh well, they were happy, great. And <laughs> but when we see bad things, we're often so keyed in as writers that these are bad things that we don't have that same sense that it should still have a, an arc, right? I will say that I often write an initial, like I will write a kind of um, generalized action 
in early drafting, you know, it's there's something easier about kind of this is what would happen, and that it's often very easy to convert it into a specific moment in a scene where something's actually happening, so that all that work that I need to establish this is the ordinary world, or this is mm. what life is like, or this is this world, can ha- can come in in that specific moment, and it's very easy for a reader to know, um, oh, this is how it always is, or even if it's changing, to know, oh, I can tell both how it's changing and how what was expected, mm-hmm. right? And so all of that kind of stuff that could be long-involved setup can be moved right into a specific scene. So I might be like, you know, she would always, uh, you know, unroll the window, and then instead it's like she unrolled the window. That becomes a scene, right? Instead of a generalized action, or or you know, and it's, and here's the, here's the thing that I want to say that is is absolutely true, which is that. Um, all of the stuff that we're talking about. So I like to think about them as tools, and I think people expect tools to work a certain way. But there are times when a screwdriver isn't used for screws. Sometimes a screwdriver is used to pop open a paint can. Sometimes it's it's a lever. I you were going to say a beer. <laughs> Um, sometimes it's a lever and not a twisting device. And so summary can also be used, and I think... Virginia Woolf did amazing things with our expectations around summary and then breaking stuff up. So sometimes... Say more about that. Well, again, to the lighthouse, Mrs. Ramsey dies in, you know, brackets in summary of a time jump that's ridiculously long. (laughs) And I think that I want to, again, my caveat for all of the stuff that we talk about is... Once you've mastered how to use a tool one way, then you can get MacGyvery and decide, I'm going to do this because I know people expect it to behave this way. Mm. And I'm going to surprise them. Because the truth is, some people tell wonderful stories that are really summary. Yeah. And so, but if you're starting out, you may not be ready for that level of playing with the tools right right you'll drill a hole in your hand (laughs) um okay so um but so i said okay so we've made a few different points here we've you know we've talked about write it however you get it down there ask yourself if it's necessary and on what level it's necessary ask yourself if there's a change happening if there's an arc building there ask yourself if you're bored off your rock (laughs) um uh ask yourself if you're if you're doing this because you don't know how to do it another way mm-hmm. or if you're doing this because it's the best way mm-hmm. to tackle this material. Um, and then, you know, also you start compressing what, you know, one detail can do a lot of work. So you may not need huge amounts of summary mm-hmm. in order to convey something that might actually come through in the scene if the scenes are vivid enough. So that's, you know, so you can start. Right. Character behavior will go a long way to establishing how people expect to interact with each other. Yeah. And so absolutely, those those details can really do a lot of work that sometimes we put into summary. Yeah. Yeah. And then when you write summary, make it fabulous. Make it vivid and specific. And make the voice. I mean, that voice is yeah. going to carry the it. The voice and the detail. I mean, it actually uses the same kind of elements that scene that are used in scene to make scene vivid except it's not moving at the that kind of in the it's the pace that's different in a way it's the kind of like camera angle the level on which you're filming 
I'm, I'm trying that on. <laughs> so um, when you have summary, you know, this was what these three months or these five years were like, you're still actually throwing in sensate details that can be visualized, that can be, yeah. you know, heard, sound, smelled, whatever. Maybe. No, I, I, I mean, just, I don't know. You can look at it. But I when I look at it what I'm talking about. Class, you do, you do really find that. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense. I think maybe I'm thinking about like, um, how, you know, again, it's compression. So one of the things that, uh, that would be the corollary in film is actually montage, right? We mm -hmm. see those montages about the summer they fell in love. But what's interesting is montage is made up exactly of um, scene bits, right? Specific detail. Right. So... The other, and I guess, so, so So in terms of film equivalence, montage is one. And I would say another might be like a long, like a wide shot. Like a wide shot is like, here's the world. Context. Yeah. Right? Here's the world and like, just look at it. And here's, you know. Right. But if you have something that is like, if you think of the, I'm thinking of sort of the beginning of Middlesex, right? He does this whole history of the family, mm -hmm. right? And this bringing you in. And if you think of adaptation, he starts at the beginning of time for the Earth in the film adaptation. The film adaptation? Not the Susan Orlean. Yeah. In the, right? Based so, on the Susan Orlean book. Right. I did not remember that. I still don't. So there's a whole Touch. opening maybe scene I, maybe that's maybe just about this, like, huge covering of time. Oh. And, it's a, uh, and it's a really fast. And I must have, like, missed that. Oh, gosh. I hope I'm talking about the right movie. <laughs> but. I bet you are. But so in both of those contexts, we have these things that are like span huge amounts of time. And I think I just had to try it on for a minute. And I do think that you're right, that there has to be some kind of concrete thing that anchors you. And at the same time, I just think that there are people who have wonderful storytelling voices that can carry summary further than people who are not quite so skilled at that kind of conversational story voice. Absolutely. And I will say, you know, Donald Moss, who is the agent who writes all those books about um, breaking out, breakout novels and stuff. And he, I've heard him say, you know, on podcasts and things that, you know, summary is, is now very much sort of allowed mm -hmm. in a different way. Although actually I don't know that that's, I don't think that's new at all, but um, yeah. So I think, you know, a voice-driven, vivid summary can be fantastic, but if but it's not going to be generic and no. kind of uh, yeah formulaic yeah. or whatever. Yeah. So I think that you know, again, I'm just going to go. You know, for me, summary really has to. It covers a static period of time where there's a lot of repetition. So, um, so there might be small variations, but as far as the story goes, it isn't something that redirects the direction of the story. Scenes do that. Yeah. Okay. Unless you're using your screwdriver to open a paint can. <laughs> so was this helpful? I mean, I think the other thing I want to say is because, because you know, like full context, I was in a, a bit of an editorial relationship with the questioner, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think one of the, the things is that when you're getting notes on a first draft, you're actually now thinking about your second draft. Right. And you you can certainly be like, okay, now I'm going to go back and try to 
do be more specific in my in the rest of my first drafting because I see that I'm that's where I'm going to go in my revision. But as we sort of started off saying, it may be that that's the best way for you to get out your first draft. And so you don't want to take notes on your first draft to be how you should have done or should be doing your first draft. They're always only about where you could go with your Next. second draft. Yes. I like that. It is time for Steal This. Amateur poets borrow. Professional poets steal. What have you come across in your wanderings and readings that you would like to take and make your own? Well, I'll, I'll go back to Michelle Obama, because, mm-hmm. you know, why not? Why um, not? I'm, I'm early on. I mean, except for that I was up most of the night, so I'm probably at like 20, 20 25% of the way through here. Um, but, you know, and of course she's a celebrity, or, you know, mm-hmm. whatever, a famous person, a public figure. Um, I think... So there's a lot, though, that is really powerful. And one of the things is, so you know how there are books where you know what's going to happen, but you're more like, how does it happen? So I think um, that's part of it is that, you know, we have this sort of sense of her and of of maybe some ambivalence about public life, but also, you know, wow, like this incredible opportunity. We also, I I mean, she knows Ellen DeGeneres, man. (laughs) She knows everybody, but um, her, you know, just her, the power of who she is. And I think also, dude, she did carpool karaoke. Her. Okay. This is just so not what's most important about Michelle Obama. <laughs> You're like, Michelle Obama, she knows Ellen DeGeneres and she did carpool karaoke. I mean, yes. But you were just talking about how like. And she was the first African-American first lady oh, no, that, I- that was known of. And um, <laughs> I'm not actually saying that you were just speaking directly about her ambivalence about being a public figure. And right. I oh, was yes. actually saying, look at the ways in which she, because I've, she was on like Jimmy Fallon. She was on, uh, did all yeah, of yes. these things, all in the service, obviously, of the amazing work she was doing. So it was just so interesting to me to think about that ambivalence when you thought about how, how. Yeah. Right. Outward yeah. facing she had to be for yeah. those eight years. Right, right, right. And right. So yes. And and <laughs> but but I think that ambivalence is part and it's it's it starts in this early in the early chapters because one of her best friends in high school was a daughter of Jesse Jackson who was revving up to run for president, right? So she had an ambivalence that came out even then when she would like end up you know, in a, on a march that she didn't when she was trying to get to the mall with her friend or whatever. So, so that ambivalence is one kind of thing that you're looking as a reader to see playing out. Mm. And then, of course, just racism, right? Like, how is this person who's clearly brilliant? You know, how is she going to survive? And the ways in which her family created the circumstances for her to survive and the ways in which she did, and the interesting kind of historical confluences and all of that, right? So it's just. But it's it becomes um, that becomes one of the sort of antagonistic forces that mm-hmm. you're very, without her sort of. I mean, she does address it, but it's also just there in this. So that's just it's just fascinating. And then the voice, the strength of the voice, and this ability to tell a story that is partly summary, because it's a memoir, right? So it's like, but it, I mean, it's a lot of summary, but it's so vivid and specific that you just feel pulled along because you also want to see how is this person going to become who she becomes and how is she going to survive what she has to survive just by being virtue of being born in these I mean, United States. Yeah, and just, to, you know, I know 
she talks briefly about sort of the history of the White House in the beginning, right? In the right? beginning, and then I'm sure we'll get back there. Because, oh my God, like that. So, <laughs> Right, uh, I mean, there's a whole sort of um, like very, like a, a very strange world, right, that she's going to head into. But it's not just that. It's like the history of that house is like... Right, right. Mm-hmm. Crazy. Anyway. <laughs> so, uh, so what are you stealing from her? Just, you know, everything. The warm <laughs> glow of being near her brilliant mind. Um, no, but I think um, I, there's this piece, and I know it's just so well-crafted, mm-hmm. and it probably comes also from all this these years of being in the public um, world and all of that. But, you know, she is able, you feel like she's just telling you the things that matter. Mm-hmm. She's just bringing you into her world and telling you the things that matter. And, of course, you know that behind that were the things she cut out, the things that, you know, the reworking and reworking. You don't think this was her first draft? <laughs> I really, really don't. Um, but it's but it's it's so good, you know. So just, just learning how to zero in on, um, for example, you know, a scene that um, – that that like already has come back, mm-hmm. which is early on. Um, she she learns how to play piano. Her her aunt teaches her how to play piano on a very broken like a broken keyed piano. So she learns that middle C is the one with the biggest sort of chip off of the corner of it. And then when she goes to do a fancy recital at this gorgeous building that her aunt has gotten like donated for this recital, and the piano is like spectacularly perfect, and she's got she's completely prepared, but she sits down at the piano. And she doesn't know where middle C is because she's learned how to play on a broken piano. Wow. And so her aunt actually comes up and points it to her and then she's off playing. And she brings that up later when she's talking about what it's like to be at Princeton and to slowly realize that you've learned how to play on a broken piano, like to understand privilege and inequality. You know, I mean, she has this amazing life and this amazing family, but just in terms of what privilege means and what the, you know, the people she's encountering at Princeton you know, who come up, you know, someone showed up with two stretch limos full of stuff to like, anyway, so just she, but she brings back that metaphor of, you know, what, what it means to be, to be privileged or disadvantaged and to, to not realize you learned how to play on a broken piano until yeah. you're there. I just have to say, there's always this part of me. It's so phenomenal that we had such brilliant people in the executive branch and then Look where we are now. It's like we had to average. We had to get to. We had I know. To we had to overcom- yeah. overcompensating America. You always <laughs> overcompensate. All right. Um, we got it. Okay. Yeah. I didn't get to tell. No, we're going to go to you right now. So I have been, I think I've mentioned him before, but I've really been enjoying reading Cal Newport and Scott Young. And, um, and it's really interesting because, of course, I'm a big fan of Barbara Oakley. And, uh, I'm going to talk about Scott Young right now because what Scott Young is doing is a he's got a kind of a framework for designing your own learning projects. And I think to a big extent, art is always a learning project. And you're always having to design your own. And you're always having to design your own. What are you interested in? What are you trying to pursue? What values are you exploring? All of those things. And... So he's fun. He's got a YouTube channel. He does a bunch of different things. But I've been reading his book called Ultra Learning. And one of the things that I I have really enjoyed about his framework so far is the idea that we have this piece which is called meta-learning. And really what you're doing is learning what you need to learn. 
mm-hmm. rather than saying, I, I, I want to write a novel. What do I really, like, what's the real goal? And it, it might be I'm writing a novel and that's where I want to end up. But is that the best project to start with? Well, often, it, right, because often it's, it's better to write a short story. And then get, right. even though they're a different form. They're blah, different blah, blah, forms, but. but a lot of the stuff can, can whatever. So the, the question then is like, okay, I want to learn how to write. And so the, what he does is he'll talk about, okay, what are the skills you need to learn? And then focus on, right? But beyond that, you framing it. So like if you were like, what I want to do is take a guided course through writing a novel. And I'm going to defer to someone else's strategy. And that's how I'm going to do my first one. The first way I'm going to learn is by using someone else's strategy. And then the next way I'll go to learn is like, what do I need to learn next? But it's that moment of creating a goal that is not vague around Mm -hmm. something. Because writing is huge. I mean, for as long as we've been doing this, I'm like, oh, (laughs) I'm sort of starting to get it. <laughs> That's why we love it. I right? know. It's true. And then, so you're making the goal small enough, but two, like, what are the components you really need to learn? Like, you don't actually need to learn how to market your book if what you want to do is write your book. Like, I'm right. in the middle of trying to do the marketing work for my film. But I have to say, I'm really glad I made the film first. Because if it's I so didn't, because you started saying maybe you should have, you know. No, no, I'm glad that I've gone through this and made the film first, and I'm in a situation where I have deadlines that are going to force me to learn the next thing I need to yeah. learn. So right now, I the, my learning project is about marketing film. But if I were was doing that before I had a film, I wouldn't actually have a film to market. <laughs> Yeah, which is hugely, hugely important. I just want to say, and we have to wrap up, but you have completely inspired me because for craft class, I'm always saying to people, give me anything you're wanting to learn, let me know, and I'll make a class about it, right? Mm -hmm. Like I make new classes every single time and and let me know what you need to learn. And because of what you're saying, I actually feel like I'm going to drill down on that a little bit and actually ask people to to really think about what their next meta-learning question is, that it's not just an option, but it's actually important as writers for them to know what is my next frontier as right. a craft learner and to be able to articulate that. And so I'm not just going to offer that. I'm going to insist on it. Yes. <laughs> and it takes a certain amount of research. So it's you... hard to know mm-hmm. what you don't know. Really yes. hard. And hard to know. And hard to know. And I hate that that's a Rumsfeldian. Is it? Yes. God. There are known knowns and unknown. Donald? No, unknowns, Yeah. Well, he stole it from someone better. Better. <laughs> all right, guys. This has been very political, shocking to all of you, and um, <laughs> oh, I gotta get. And we uh, look forward to hearing your question and answering it on a future episode of Story Nation.